For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy April, everyone, and happy April Fool's Day. I am so thankful that you're all here today. It's a rainy day here in New York. Uh, we are truly kicking off April with April showers. Uh, I am sorry for the delay. We had a few technical glitches uh, to get us started today. Uh, but I've got some great news. Um, I, uh, that's why I'm late, uh, because I was on the phone uh, with a producer, and I'm going to be standing by for Josh Groban in Sweeney Todd. Uh, so, uh, so that's why I'm late. Uh, so uh, thank you all for your patience and for waiting. Uh, but I am so excited about today's show because one of my favorite people uh, in all of the theater is on the show today. He was on the show at the very beginning of COVID when I first started doing the show. And he was just about to launch one of my favorite magazines, Encore Magazine, which is a celebration of the theater, all things theater. Now, Carol Channing, I drop her name a lot. You all know that, but I'm going to do it again today. She said, in order for a show to succeed, you need people from all walks of life. In the theater, in the dark, you need doctors and lawyers and housewives, and you need rich people and poor people and people from all different walks of life. Well, the theater is very much made up of that as well. And you need people from all areas. And if there was a special Tony Award for a theater enthusiast, a theater historian, uh, a theater author, uh, our guest today, Robert Viagas, would definitely get that Tony Award. And I would be the one leading the pack to make sure that he gets that Tony Award. He has written so many incredible books uh, celebrating the theater. And today we're going to talk about two of his books. One you can get right now uh, on Amazon, and it's called Good, Good Morning Olive. And it's about haunted theaters, not only of Broadway, but beyond Broadway. And I am very interested in the paranormal. And I want to find out how it all began with Robert. But beyond that, uh, we are also going to talk about Robert's next book. Uh, I've been fortunate enough uh, to see a little preview of that, uh, but I can't wait to get a hard copy in my hands, uh, uh, called Right This Way, about how audiences have evolved over the years. So with your permission, Robert, what I would like to do is I would like to devote the first half of today's show to your current book, and then I would like to talk about your second book, uh, on the second half of today's show, if with your permission. Uh, you're muted. Uh, Robert, you're muted. Robert, you're muted. See, it's the ghost of the theater that are trying to interfere with us today. So I can't hear you. Robert, I need your wife here. <laughs> Robert's wonderful wife is going to be our tech person who's going to come in and she's going to help us with this. But you're muted. Hello. 
So while he while we're waiting for him to uh, get the sound on, uh, I will tell you about uh, this book, Good Morning Olive, and I will explain a little bit about this book. Uh, so hopefully we're going to get the sound on. Uh, we could hear him before we went on the air. So I know it's there. Turn your volume up. Uh, I don't know why we're not hearing him. You know, the tech gods are against us today. Uh, so we're going to try to figure this out. This might be... Okay, now we've lost, uh, there, he, there he is again. Are, is your sound? Sorry, everyone, about this. These things happen. So. Now you are, you're, you are muted. How's this? Uh, now I can hear you. It's, I had to refresh the page. Okay, uh, there you are. So. Richard, I, I, you know something? I think your initial suggestion was the one. The ghosts, um, sometimes the ghosts are very friendly, um, and sometimes they don't want you to talk about them. So, uh, But we, uh, we managed to, to overcome that today. So uh, I started to say, after that beautiful introduction, um, <laughs> you could pretty much do whatever you want. Anything, I'm, I'm at your disposal today. Well, first of all, um, the title of your book, uh, Good Morning Olive, uh, and you, you know, that's a greeting at the New Amsterdam Theater, uh, Olive Thomas, uh, here she is, and mm -hmm. uh, gorgeous, 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 she became a Ziegfeld girl, there's no denying that, but today, uh, trivia question, I'm putting you on the spot, because today is her wedding anniversary, did you know this? Her, which she of married. she was married twice? Which I know, but her first wedding, yes. August. I mean, uh, August. Listen to me, April first, nineteen eleven, mm -hmm. and uh, that's why she does not want you and I to talk today. <laughs> it was a very unhappy marriage. Her first marriage was very unhappy. Her second marriage was not a whole lot happier. But um, she was. Uh, she lived in the Midwest. She had a, a, a very unhappy and abusive husband, and. Everybody that she met would tell her, you are the most beautiful girl in the world. And uh, Ziegfeld used to hire, uh, he advertised that he, he hired only the most beautiful girls in the world. And everybody said, you should be in the Follies. And so she got divorced and she came to New York with nothing but her beauty as her calling card. And for Olive, that was enough. Well, you know, her husband, you know, he didn't want to take responsibility uh, for their bad marriage. I mean, he kept, oh, uh, you know, he kept attributing it to the fact that she was ambitious, right. that she wanted something more than what he was able to offer her. And of course she was ambitious. She came yeah. to New York, she got into the Follies. And I love the fact that you really give a sense of what, uh, who's uh, Ziegfeld was it, you know, and I never really thought about this until I read it in your writing, uh, that you referred to him as the Jeff Bezos of his day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was he was uh, sort of the master of uh, American entertainment. That was a time before television, before 
movies even, or the movies were just getting started at that time. And the theater was king in those days. And of course, in my, in my view, it's still the king. But uh, the, if you were at the top of the theater world, you were on top of the American entertainment world. And that is where Ziegfeld was. But, you know, not only the Follies, but the midnight shows that he used to do. Uh, I mean, there was a time uh, when, you know, Candor and Ebb wrote about, you know, the city that never sleeps. Uh, New York, for those who are not here now, uh, it's a very different New York, but it is no longer the city that never sleeps. Uh, when I came to New York in 1979, uh, there were late night diners. Uh, when I did my first cabaret show, I was performing at midnight. Uh, on Friday and Saturday nights and packing them in. Of course, this was before social media, before all of these things that kept people at home at night. People did get out of their homes. They did go out. Uh, discos, all these things were part of it. So people did go out and experience nightlife on a level that we don't really have anymore. Well, in the 19th century, there was, there was a lot of very, very uh, adult uh, entertainment. And... Um, it was limited, really, it limited the audience. And Tony Pastor, who was a, will join the Astors at Tony Pastor's famous line from my from uh, uh, Hello Dolly. Um, Tony came and created what eventually became known as Vaudeville. And Tony would advertise that you could bring women and children to the shows. And so we went through a very conservative st stage, uh, that, which is not to say that there wasn't a, a lot of adult entertainment. But for Ziegfeld, when he did the Follies downstairs, he had a lot of beautiful girls, but it was always uh, what he would refer to as tasteful. It, it never uh, was uh, uh, even R-rated. But there was a demand for that sort of thing. So that theater on 42nd Street, the main stage where Aladdin is playing now, that's where the, the regular Ziegfeld Follies were. But Ziegfeld also knew that he had a potential adult audience. And so in those days before air conditioning, they would sometimes build theaters on the roofs of buildings. And so they could run through the summer and they'd be outdoors under the stars and they called them roof gardens. Uh, the whole history of gardens, why we have Madison Square Garden and Winter Garden, that's a whole other thing to go into, but they had these roof gardens. Uh, the, of course, the problem was when it rained. So what uh, they did was when they built that theater, they built a, a rooftop garden that had a, a, a roof that could close when the weather was bad. Anyway, that was known as the New Amsterdam Roof. And Ziegfeld put on a special show called the Midnight Frolics. And the Midnight Frolics were a little more of an adult show. They would show a little bit more. The humor was a little bit more suggestive. And when he saw Olive come in the door, she wanted to be in the Follies. And he said, I think you'd be better for the Midnight Frolic. And so the 2015 Midnight Frolic starred uh, the beautiful Olive Thomas. And she was an instant sensation. Well, she had a very provocative balloon number that she did. I mean, I, I mean, when I think of, uh, I mean, if you want to talk about this, I mean, everyone get the book. Uh, but uh, to see these, to me, I see these lecherous men with their cigars popping her balloons. Pop her balloons with their balloons. As she would walk by. I mean, that just blows my mind that <laughs> this was going on. Very but, different time. Uh, but, you know, Talk about her death and then 
the aftermath of when people started to experience her apparitions and seeing her in the theater? Well, um, very quickly after she uh, she made her hit in the in the uh, Midnight Frolics, she was scooped up by Hollywood. There's a whole story behind that. She went out and she made a lot of silent films. She was really kind of the first sexy movie blonde. I mean, there have been many since then, but she was really the first. And you can go on YouTube and you can see her silent films that were made. She just has, there's just a beautiful spirit to her. Um, she, 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 the, the pretty eyes, the pretty hair, but just the way she carried herself. She was magically beautiful and the, and the camera loved her. She made some wonderful films, uh, just a couple of them. And along the way, she met up with what was then the Hollywood royalty, uh, led by Mary Pickford, uh, who, uh, was a, she was America's sweetheart. And uh, she, I think she was a little, I think she had a little conflict with uh, Olive, but her brother Jack did not have conflict with Olive. He, uh, among many men who fell for her out in Hollywood, Jack fell for her. And be, I think because of the connection, because of the, uh, the idea of marrying into this royalty family, she married Jack Pickford. And she and Jack sort of lived a, an F. Scott Fitzgerald life out in, in Hollywood. And, um, but they, they also, they loved, but then they also fought. They fought, they loved, they fought, they loved. And unfortunately, um, we have a mainly adult audience here. So I, I don't, I don't mind, uh, go uh, part imparting this detail that Jack, uh, had contracted syphilis and unfortunately he gave it to Olive and she discovered this when they were on a trip to Paris in 1920. And, this is where it gets to be kind of a, a, a mystery, although I, I, I think it, looking back, it's not such a mystery. Um, the night that she discovered that she had also contracted this disease from her husband, uh, her husband had brought along medication. Uh, the medication is something that they call bichloride of mercury. It was really a poison. And in small quantities, it killed the, uh, the spirochetes. Uh, so he was taking this medicine and they went out partying and she came home. And according to the police report, which I have a copy of, um, she uh, accidentally ingested most of the bottle of um, bichloride of mercury. Now, if you've ever seen these pills and, and I have there are pictures of these pills online, mm -hmm. uh, they're shaped like coffins. That's a wonderful detail that I am not making up. And they're big. And I'm sorry, no matter how drunk you are, you don't take a whole bottle of coffin-shaped, big, dark blue pills by accident. But the official cause of death was accident. Some people also think that he murdered her, but I don't think he murdered her. He loved her. He stayed by her side uh, till, till her, her passing. But she died in Paris of poisoning uh, from taking these her husband's uh, syphilis medication. And everybody was very sad. Um, but then something odd started happening over at the New Amsterdam in New York. People working at the theater would turn around and they would see Olive. And she, you know, in my book, I talk about different kinds of theater ghosts. Some of them are just, uh, just, a, a, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, but I mean, but you, some people even saw her with the bottle. Yes, well, that's where she she appears. She's always carrying a blue bottle, which was if you if you look at what how they 
packaged the bichloride of mercury. It was in a blue bottle, just like that. But she would appear in the outfit that she wore in the, in the frolics, the midnight frolics, and she'd be carrying a blue bottle. And it, she didn't look like a ghost. I, I started to say theater ghosts, some of them are, you know, they're, it's just a, a knocking sound. And sometimes it's just a cold um, um, cloud in a, in a theater. But sometimes they appear, sometimes they appear, you know, like you think of Casper, the friendly ghost, it's this sort of white uh, apparition. But very rarely, the ghost looked like there's a person in the room with you. And this is how Olive appeared. Olive appeared as it looked like Olive was standing there in the room, except she was wearing her costume from the frolics and she's carrying a blue bottle and she would speak. And she would, she, she always, there was, for many years, she appeared only to men. Recently, I've been getting stories that she has begun appearing to women. So who knows after a hundred years dead, maybe she's finally woke. Um, she, she, uh, she said, here's what she says. How you doing fella? I'll do it again. <laughs> How you doing, fella? I am imitating people who don't know each other, who over the years have seen her and had her speak to them, and they all imitate her voice exactly the same way, including uh, Dana Amendola, who is the house manager of the New Am, uh, who is, I guess, now her landlord. Um, Disney owns her now because they bought the theater, and Dana imitated this voice. I said, oh my God, Dana, everybody who imitates her voice imitates it exactly the same way. And again, she has been appearing over the years. Uh, for There were a couple of years where she did not appear during the years when the New Amsterdam was dark. Um, there were times when they would use the, the space where the um, the old uh, frolics were, was used as a rehearsal space. A lot of shows rehearsed up there. Uh, there's the famous incident with... Um, uh, Moss Hart and Julie Andrews when they were working on My Fair Lady and she wasn't quite getting Eliza Doolittle right. He took her up to that space and exactly. there was a famous incident where he coached her to be Eliza and she came down and she was Eliza. They rehearsed uh, Will Rogers Follies up there, a lot of things. The space is now uh, offices for uh, Disney theatricals. I have been up there. Tom Schumacher sits pretty much right on the spot where Olive used to do her dance or balloon dance. Um, the proscenium is still there, but the rest of it has been turned into offices. Anyway, uh, I also had, I also asked them if I could sleep over there or stay overnight at the theater, uh, which they, at first they said yes. Uh, but then the Disney lawyers said, uh, we don't want somebody sleeping in our theater. So I got to stay till midnight. Um, it was very cool. I took some pictures. I have these things called orbs in the pictures, but who knows? I, I try to be as skeptical as I can. I love telling these stories when people, people after people after people tell me the same thing. They've all had the same experience. Those are the stories that I put in the book. And Olive probably has more stories that are identical than any of these other ghosts, except maybe, uh, um, maybe, uh, Zig, uh, um, uh, what Belasco, Belasco also has appears very frequently and not millions of years ago. Now they appear now. They appear to people working at the theater now. Do you think it's because that people now are more interested in the paranormal and that people are more in tune or more aware of this than they were, let's say, 50, 60 years ago? Well, I know over the, the Belasco, they've had... Uh, the Belasco Theater has been beautifully updated by the Schubert organization. Um, 
Belasco came from a, uh, a generation where there were these entrepreneurs who did everything. They would write the shows. They would direct the shows. They would manage the shows. They'd hand out the product. They did everything. And in addition to all that, uh, Belasco lived uh, above, the, as they said, above the store. Uh, he has an apartment above the theater, uh, which is still there. I'm one of the few people who've actually been inside it. Uh, he was known as the Very Bishop. interesting apartment because I... <laughs> have you been? Have you been? Uh, no, but, uh, you know... Uh, uh, my, you know, cousin-in-law uh, mm. is a dresser and has huh. described in detail, uh, you know, knowing his history and everything. Uh, that's a another show altogether. Uh, his very unique history. Yes. Um, but I, I, you know, I've got a, a question from Alan, who's watching the show, and perhaps you can, you know, uh, if you'll pardon the pun, uh, shed a little light on this. Uh, <laughs> Describe to everyone what the ghost light is and how that came into being. Well, on every stage, uh, every professional theater, uh, they put at the end of the night when people go home, they put what's called the ghost light. It's it's not very elaborate. It's usually just a pipe with a, like a music stand bottom and a pipe. And on top, there's a bulb, uh, a bare bulb. Uh, the only update uh, they've done to this over the years is that they now use CFC bulbs instead of the old incandescent bulbs. Mm -hmm. um, but it's placed on the middle of the stage. And, you know, if you watch uh, movies or TV shows that are supposed to be set in the theatrical world, they usually establish their bona fides by well, having, you know, some crusty old uh, stagehand come out and put out the, the ghost light at the end of the at the end of the night. Well, you see um, it in Gypsy you know, just before Rose's turn. That's right. That's exactly right. But because it's so, and it's been around a long time and technically uh, it's there for safety purposes. Uh, so in case somebody's walking across the stage in the middle of the night, they don't walk off the end of the stage. But, you know, after the theater is closed late at night, people don't walk across the stage. A lot of people in the business believe that it is there, that it kind of has a uh, a positive purpose and uh, maybe a, a little scarier purpose. Uh, one of them is that uh, the ghosts who haunt the theater, when they come out at night, uh, after everybody is gone, they have their another chance to to strut and fret their hour upon the stage, as as William Shakespeare said. They have one more chance to walk across the stage. Um, some people also, though, believe that uh, the ghosts of the theaters would take over the theater and would cause mischief and that the light keeps them away. So your guess, uh, your guess is as good as mine. Everybody has a theory as to why these ghost lights are there. But I will tell you this. They are required by union contract to be placed on the stage of every professional theater. And there's a reason for that. And I, I really, I wanted to call this book originally Ghost Light, but... Um, uh, somebody else ha already had a book out called Ghost Light, and I didn't want to confuse them. But I also wanted to uh, acknowledge. Well, with all of the stories Olive. that you have, did you start with the story of Olive, and how did you rest on this title? Well, I used to share, and I worked at Playbill for 24 years. I was I founded Playbill.com, and uh, I I okay. did a lot of things. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I'm very, very proud of it. You know, it's nice that something you create something and it continues on uh, on its on its own. 
Uh, so I am very proud of, of, of what we accomplished there. My background was in journalism. I worked for Newsday and, and other newspapers when I started out. And I want, when I, I was a teenager, I had a, I had a theater column in my local news, my local weekly newspaper. Um, and I, starting when I was 17 years old and I could never understand why they didn't have, why, why the big mainstream newspapers didn't put theater on the front page every day. They put business on the front page. They put politics on the front page. If you go to, Los Angeles, they put they put movie industry news on the front page constantly. Why don't the New York papers put theater news on the front? There's page? an entire sports section. That's right. That's yeah. right. So I used to imagine to myself, someday maybe I will start my own newspaper and I will put theater on the front page every single day. Unfortunately, I did not have enough 12 year olds on bicycles to deliver that newspaper. But when the Internet came along, I said, I could have my theater newspaper and put theater on the front page every day. And that, that was what was behind uh, the starting of playbill.com. And they still put theater news on the front page every day. Ah. That's great. It's absolutely. Um, I want to ask you um, before, I mean, you've written so many incredible books. Uh, only 22. Uh, only 22. Uh, who's counting? Uh, but, uh, and I've got a shelf full of them right over here. I, this, uh, this, this whole, up is all my books right uh, but uh, i've got i've got my own <laughs> but before you uh wrote this book uh did you have an interest in the paranormal here's what happened i started at playbill and i used to share an office with a great old guy named louis botto louis botto used to do that at this theater column that appeared in the um in the, all the program. In those days, the programs were much thicker. They had much more room. They used to run it frequently. Now they run it when they have space. One of my favorite sections, by the way. Yes. Well, you know, it gets harder and harder as years go. After Lewis retired, I did it for a couple of years. It gets harder and harder because the space doesn't change. We have those tiny little Playbill pages. And when I started, you know, there was only, there was only uh, 84 uh, years of, of uh, history to cover. Now there's more than a hundred years of history mm -hmm. to cover. And people, you know, they want, they want to know some of the big historical uh, plays, but they also want to know, what did we see here? So I always tried to put in some of the, some of the more recent shows as well. But I used to share an office with Lewis and Lewis used to get these calls from actors all over Broadway about these ghosts. Lewis was kind of Mr. Ghost Central. It never occurred to him to write a book about it. He just became the guy that you would call up if uh, you had a ghost story. And I used to sit there because the two of us had desks in one office and I used to listen to him. And I remember this was now during the 90s when uh, uh, Disney was rehabilitating the New Amsterdam. And we got a call one day from one of the guys who was working at the theater. And apparently what had happened was he was in the mezzanine and he was working on some, uh, uh, he was cutting wood. And he turned around and there standing there was this beautiful girl with this white diaphanous costume carrying a blue bottle. And she said, how you doing, fella? <laughs> and he said, what are you doing up here? And the workman and... And then she vanished. The workman went down to complain to the foreman and said, if you're going to have people wandering around the construction site, you need to have them wear a hard hat. That was how it started. And the it was the foreman who said, 
that's not a person wandering around. You saw the ghost. This theater has a ghost. And I remember listening to Lewis's side of this conversation, trying to explain who Olive was. And this was kind of the beginning of my fascination with this. So I would say, Lewis, uh, so there's a ghost on Broadway? And he said, oh, Robert, almost every theater has a ghost. And so I was like, Lewis, tell me. So uh, Lewis imparted a lot of these stories to me. So when I started doing the, I don't know if you remember the Playbill Broadway yearbook. Oh, yes, of course. I was, I created the Playbill Broadway yearbook. Mm -hmm. And what I would do is in the yearbook, I would, uh, in addition, the idea was to print all the programs, the contents of all the playbills from that season. And to make it a little bit more interesting, so that it wasn't just the contents of the playbill, I would hire a correspondent on every show and i would ask them a bunch of questions like uh where did you have your opening night party um where does everybody hang out you know who is what did you do uh did you do anything special for the holidays you know things like just life backstage on broadway who wore the heaviest or hottest costume what are some catchphrases that only the company would recognize uh who who was the orchestra member who played the most consecutive performances without a sub? And that's the sort of things that I put in here. But what I did was on every show, I would ask them, did you have a ghostly experience? So I did this for 10 years. After 10 years, I had uh, a spreadsheet of every theater and every show at every theater. And was there a ghost at the theater? And I found something really, really interesting. Don't forget, this is my reporter training. I wanted to quantify this. So they weren't just a bunch of, you know, airy stories. The, are there actually ghosts? Are there actually ghosts at every theater? Here's what I found out that was so interesting, Richard. The theaters, a lot of the theaters did not have ghosts. And show after show after show, I would ask the correspondents, did you have a ghostly experience? And they would say, no, sorry, we didn't have a ghostly experience. But the theaters that did have ghosts always had a ghost story. And the ghost stories were pretty similar from show to show to show. It was almost as if some of the theaters had ghosts and some of the theaters didn't have ghosts. And so it's those stories that were repeated on show after show, um, uh, year after year that I put into my book, uh, Good Morning Olive. It's all those stories that were consistent from show to show. And I, if, I always include the name of the person you're gone. No, you are. I'm still here. See? Thing I'm still here now while I'm trying to figure out how to get you back. Good times and bum times. I've seen them all in my gear. Beautiful. Here. Beautiful. Perfect. Perfect. Just the right amount. <laughs> um, I'm still here. So uh, I didn't disappear like the ghosts. So so I, those are the stories that I put in there. And I started collecting. And when people started to find out that I collected ghost stories, word kind of got out. And so pretty much every other day, I'd get an email from somebody in California or Memphis, Tennessee, or uh, uh, up in Canada or in Texas. And I, so I got ghost stories from all over the place. My friend Mark Shenton in, in uh, London said, oh, Robert. We have, not only do we have more ghosts than you have in America, we have better ghosts than you have in America. And I said, well, you're going to have to prove that. So he collected a ton of wonderful ghost stories and sent them to me. Um, so I have wonderful stories from all over the, all over the world. Uh, and some of them, some of them are lovely. I have to say, Lewis, a lot of the theater ghosts are not scary ghosts. 
Some of them are, but a, a lot of them are just, they're just people who worked all their lives to get onto Broadway or to get onto the professional stage. And once they got there, they didn't want to leave ever. <laughs> That's why some of, the, and so a lot of the ghosts, they're, they're pretty benevolent. They, they help the show. Sometimes they've even saved people's lives, uh, living people's lives. Um, the, 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 the ghost stories are all over the place. Some of them are terrifying and some of them are so sad. Like the, 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 the fire at the Oriental theater in, uh, in, uh, uh, in Chicago, where more than a thousand people died in, in, a, in a fire. And now their ghosts haunt that theater, which is the now renamed the Nederlander. Mm -hmm. Some of them are, some of them are sad. Some of them are scary, but most of them, quite honestly, they're benevolent. So I, when there's, when they're benevolent, I tell the story of things that they, that they did to help the theater. Now, Olive is kind of in between. Olive is, she obviously loves being in the theater for, and obviously she loved men because for many years she only appeared to men, but she's also a little, she's got an attitude. She's not, if, if somebody she doesn't like, she, if she's somebody she doesn't like, she, she messes with them. Uh, one thing that I, I find just wonderful is the fact that uh, I mentioned Dana Amendola before, the house manager of the new AM. Um, he has placed her picture at every entrance to the theater. If you open up the stage door, you can see a picture of Olive. I have reproduced it in the book. When you go in through the front door, you walk down that gallery, you know, you know that, that long gallery, uh, mm -hmm. you walk down and there's all the pictures of the great stars, the Ziegfeld Follies. The last one on the right is in somebody you never heard of before. It's Olive Thomas, because the people who work there, when they come to work, they have to say, what do they have to say? Good morning, Olive. Good morning, because Olive. if they don't say good morning, Olive, stuff happens to them. They get tripped or they come with their, their dressing room and they find that their makeup has been thrown onto the floor. Uh, sometimes they're, they're, there's uh, lipstick on their mirror. I wonder they're, if there have been any encounters of Billy Burke and Olive at the theater. You're talking about Ziegfeld's uh, yes. wife, who was very oh. jealous because... Uh, Ziegfeld hired the famous um, pinup girl artist uh, Vargas, yes. uh, no relation, yeah. to um, uh, paint a picture of her topless. And he hung it in his office. And Billy, his wife, would never go into that office. And she was very happy when, uh, uh, when Olive got hired out in California and uh, was no longer hanging around the New Amsterdam Theater and her husband. We all and, know Billy Burke uh, and, as the uh, uh, as the good witch, Glinda the good witch. The question, are you a good witch or a bad witch? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure when she was thinking of Wicked Witch, I'm sure she was thinking to a certain degree of Olive. Well, I want to ask you: Have you ever encountered uh, a, a ghostly experience in the theater? I have to tell you something: I have never personally experienced a ghost. I had one close experience that might be ghostly. It's not very dramatic. I do love telling the ghost stories and I wish the ghosts would appear to me. And I have tried my best. I think I told you I've, I stayed at the, uh, the new Amsterdam because I thought because Olive appears the most, I thought she was the, my best chance. Also, I went up to the, uh, the Belasco apartment, hoping to run into Belasco up there, but, uh, he appears mainly to women. So, uh, that would, that didn't help me there, but, um, I went to the, uh, one of the, everybody told me that the guy who has seen her the most 
is a carpenter that works at the theater. Mm -hmm. So I met him and he took me on a tour backstage and he said that the place where she mostly appears is a place called the trap. Now, you know what the trap is. I'm surprised how few people know what that is. What is it? Well, the trap, I mean, he had a secret entrance into, you know, getting backstage uh, in, in that he would bring people into his little lair. Right. But oh, you're, oh, you're talking about Belasco. Belasco. The, the section underneath the stage is known as the trap. And that's why the little door that enters there, they can pop up onto the stage yes. is the trap door. Right. But the section under the stage is known as the trap. And um, even though I mentioned that the uh, what used to be the uh, New Amsterdam roof is now offices for Disney, the old trap is still there and it's used for storage. And there is a, a spiral staircase in there. And this carpenter told me that sometimes Olive appears just as a pair of legs walking up the spiral staircase. Wow. And um, so he said, if you want to see her, your best chance is to go to the the uh, the old trap, which is now where we keep where we use for storage. So he took me into the room and we went in the room and it was dark, which is great. I said, turn the lights on. He said, well, we don't really have a lot. We have a couple of we have like a bulb here, but it doesn't light up. It's just storage. One of the things that they had stored in there was an old door and not just the door itself. It was the door in a heavy metal frame. Um. It's, it's the sort of thing that if you were building a wall, you could put this in and it would be both the door and the frame. Mm-hmm. This thing must have weighed 800 pounds. It was enormous and it was leaning against a wall. So I went in there and he said, well, you know, she doesn't really come. She's not a dog. She won't come when you call her. Uh, so we've had people who try to get her to show up and she just, she does, she resists that. And I said, well, I've, you know, I've been so written about this so much. Uh, maybe she'll make a special case for me. So uh, I said, Olive Thomas, Olive Thomas, nothing, nothing, no response at all. So, uh, but then I remembered something. I had interviewed, um, uh, I interviewed an, an actress from that period. And in those days, being an actress was considered kind of déclasse. They, they, they. A lot of people thought there was li- very little difference between an actress and a prostitute. Right, right. So a lot of the actresses who would get married would use their married names. So I'd said, let me give this a try. So instead of saying Olive Thomas, I said, Mrs. Pickford, are you there, Mrs. Pickford? And this enormous, disembodied. Uh, door, piece, a prop. It's a, I mean, it was p- part of a set. It went boom. And we laughed. You know, when something like that happens, you, the first thing, you don't sit there and think to yourself, oh, it's a ghost. What you think is, what a funny coincidence that just as I said that, this thing went boom. But we went and looked at it and it, like it wasn't, it was very heavy and it was sitting very firmly on the floor. So I thought, well, it must have shifted. Uh, you know, maybe we came in here and who knows what caused it to shift. He said, call her again. So I said, Mrs. Pickford? And the thing went boom again. And fortunately, I was I was doing Playbill Radio at that time and I recorded it. And I can tell you, it made terrible radio. It's just a boom. I mean, it, unless you were there and your hair stood up on the back of your head, uh, it, it didn't really have the effect. But 
I tried, called her a few more times. And again, he said, she doesn't, she doesn't want, doesn't want to be called. Like people show up on Halloween to see her. She doesn't, she hides on Halloween. She doesn't have anything to do with that. Mm -hmm. She comes when she wants to come. So anyway, I have to tell you, Richard, that is the closest I've come to actually seeing a ghost that I know of. Uh, but a lot of other people who are not insane or drug addicts, uh, well, they, I will tell you my story. And you oh, may think, oh, I'm, yes, yes, you may yes. think I'm crazy when I tell you this. Some people may think I'm crazy anyway. But I had the good fortune of appearing on stage at Carnegie Hall. And mm -hmm. I was standing on stage and I put my arm up. And at the exact moment that I did so, I saw Judy Garland from my right eye standing in the wings. Um, and it was just as clear an image <sighs> as I can see you right now. Second and, edition. This story is going into the second edition. I'll tell you right um, now. It was, uh, it, was it was a very strong image. And I spoke to one of the stagehands and they said that that was not the first time that they had heard someone say that. And it was just, I mean, I got, and I'm getting goosebumps uh, now talking about it, but it was this feeling that came over me that I can't even describe. And, but it was such a vivid, strong image. And, you know, but I wanted to talk about this because you talk about this in the book. And I have very strong feelings um, about what's happening at the Palace Theater. It's and, just what I was going to bring up. Yes. Go ahead. And with the uh, and this is very newsworthy right now. Uh, mm -hmm. For those who don't know, the Palace Theater is and I have not been really in that area in a while. So I don't even know what it looks like right now. But it's lift, literally lifted up now. Three floors. So that they can build a shopping center underneath it. Um, what are your thoughts, number one, about all of this happening? And what do you think this is doing in terms of the legacy of so many people that played the palace, not only in terms of vaudeville, but the great theatrical legacy of shows that played the palace theater? Well, you know, a lot of people have forgotten the the incredible legacy that that theater had. Uh, it was built in 1913. And th uh, thanks to a booker by the name of Martin Beck, who later mm -hmm. built uh, his own theater and named it after himself. Uh, Martin made that into the, uh, the pinnacle of vaudeville to the point where a lot of vaudeville people, they considered that the greatest moment of their career when they played the palace. Uh, 47th Street, which runs alongside, yes, this is when Judy played the played the palace in the 1950s. Uh, the street that ran alongside the theater where the stage door is was known as Dream Street because a lot of actors used to, uh, vaudeville performers would book rooms at the boarding houses there and they would, right there, put the, can you put that back up again? That place right in front of the theater under the marquee was known as the beach. Because in the days of vaudeville, the vaudeville performers would stand out there and would do their acts, hoping that the people at the palace would see them and book them into the palace. And so that's the level of intensity that people had toward the palace. And that is probably why. Oh, and by the way, in in 1966, it was changed over for uh, became a legitimate theater for uh, Broadway shows. It opened with Sweet Charity and many other great shows have played there over the years. Uh, the very first Broadway show that I saw was at the Palace Theater. What was that? In 1979. 
Uh, and I ran into Martin Vidnovic last night, uh, Oklahoma. The revival of Oklahoma. That was the last one that Richard Rogers got to oversee before he passed yes. away. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a great theater, and it is rumored to have more ghosts than any other theater. It's rumored to have 120 ghosts. I have accounts of about 10 of them in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, because I, I uh, a guy, a friend of mine named Ray Venezia worked there. He ran uh, the uh, uh, merchandise desk, and so he was often there late at night by himself. And he had came across with a lot of wonderful stories. But I have stories there from Andrea McArdle. By the way, I try to all my ghost stories. I try to have the name of the person who gave me the story, so that you know that it's legit. Uh, or they legitimately believe that they saw something. But supposedly the theater has more than 100 ghosts. And uh, one of them is reported to be Judy Garland also. But she, she certainly gets around. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the, uh, so I'm concerned that when they, when they uh, jack this theater up, which they're in the process of doing, I understand they had a little trouble recently. But the idea, well, I don't know how the, they talked the Nederlanders into this, but they actually dug out the bottom of the theater. They put it on these enormous jacks and they jacked it up three stories to build a merchandise mart underneath because land in Times Square, which used to be, you know, worthless practically, has now become enormously uh, mm -hmm. valuable. So my question is, are the ghosts going to be jacked up with the theater? Are the ghosts attached to the building? Or are the ghosts attached to the space? So in other words, is the merchandise mart now going to be haunted by by Judy Garland and Houdini and all these other Have people? you seen Poltergeist? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. So we'll see. Who knows? The Broadway ghost. I, I suspect that the ghosts want to haunt a theater. They don't want to you know, haunt another Sephora. They want to haunt a theater. So I suspect that the ghosts are going to stick with the the theater, which is now, they used to have a law in New York that no seat could be more than a certain number of feet from the, uh, from the street. Um, that was in case there was a fire, people could get out, but they amended that law. And so now you have shows, uh, theaters like the, uh, the Gershwin and the Marquee, where you have to go up a flight of stairs to get into the theater. And so the rules that applied to the original um, palace no longer apply to the palace that's there on 47th Street and and Seventh uh, Avenue. I'm getting. Well, do you get think that uh, because of um, you know we're living in a very crazy world right now, and because of safety concerns in theaters and everything, I mean I'm really noticing that uh, you know uh, uh, last night I was at uh, NJ Pack uh, to see a concert mm -hmm. and. Uh, and then I'm noticing that more and more that announcements are being made about uh, exits and, you know, and uh, safety concerns of getting out of a theater in case there is some, God forbid, some hor horrific uh, incident in the theater now uh, to really be aware. And I was actually with a friend last week who said that when she buys her tickets now, she insists that her tickets be near the exit. Mm -hmm. Um do you think that uh, we will go back to a time where uh, those concerns in terms of the way that seating in theaters are happening, that they will go back to fewer seats in theaters and everything because of these concerns? Or do you think uh, that the almighty daughter, uh, dollar will uh, outweigh how they will sell tickets? 
Well, just judging from all the fees that they put on tickets, even if you buy them at the box office sometime, I suspect that they're going to, you know, we're, we're in a new world and it's going to stay there. Don't forget the when they passed those laws, I mean, just to be fair, that when they passed those laws, they didn't have sprinkler systems and things. And a lot of the theaters now are equipped with the, these safety things. But ever since Columbine, um, people, uh, they're very concerned about what, uh, about people in theaters and crazy people. I mean, look what happens on airplanes, for gosh sakes. Um, they're very- There's someone rushing the stage. I remember- uh, you know, we're changing the subject a little bit, but I, you know, I remember when Farrah Fawcett was attacked on that's stage in extremities and, uh, you know, and, uh, and that's been happening more and more. It seems like in theaters, uh, where, you know, someone just rushes up on the stage for whatever reasons. And it's always been a concern of mine, uh, another subject altogether. And that will bring us to your book, which we're not going to have a lot of time to go into. Uh, audiences are changing. I really want to, I want you to come back uh, when your book comes out. Uh, will you promise mm -hmm. me that? Um, because um, it's always bothered me that alcohol uh, is served in the theater. Uh, and uh, and it, to me, it's a sense of people going to the theater and uh, you know, having too much to drink and a sense of entitlement and all these things that are happening. And the two don't mix very well. And uh, why do people need to drink in the theater anyway? Well, I have to tell you, I mean, I've been going to the theater for a long time. And I remember years ago, people drank a lot more and they would, uh, there was a lot more like vomiting and people falling asleep and things like that. Because it used to be all bars around Times Square. Now it's all um, coffee sh coffee shops. There's one on every corner now, and I think people drink more coffee. And in a way, I'm a little more worried about about people hopped up on on Java uh, <laughs> coming in to see the shows. And I and also uh, there was a time when people had much more of a, an experience of going to the theater, and they realized not to make noise and they, you know, they would dress up. I mean, when you see um, newsreels of people going to the theater in the old days, they had, they had, they would wear suits, they would wear skirts and things like that. I, I wouldn't want to have to wear a, a suit every time I went to the theater. So I think it's, it's kind of welcome that the clothing at least has become more relaxed, but people, people don't know. They're so used to sitting in their living room and commenting on things that happens when they're watching a show. Uh, or getting up and going to the refrigerator and things like that. And you, you, you just can't do that in the theater. Well, I'm but an I, anomaly. I still wear a suit to the theater because as you know, good for you. Carol Channing said that when she would be performing in a cow pasture, Alfred Lunt and Lynn Fontaine would show up and he would be in tails and she would be in gloves and pearls. And she'd say, why are you dressed like this? And she would say out of respect for you. And so I always dress out of respect for the artist on stage. Mm -hmm. So that's, well, I would never come in like cutoffs or flip flops or uh, what they call horribly call wife beater T-shirts. But I see those things when I go to the theater, especially in the summer. Um, I mean, I I always wear, you know, uh, not business casual, business like an what I would wear to the office is, is what I wear. Black shoes, you know, things like that. No sneakers. But, um, you know, 
uh, in my book on the audience, if I can just cross over for a second and talk yes. about right this way, I write a history of audiences. And one of the things that, um, uh, th that I think also play into what we're talking about is the fact that the audience has splintered so much and the, and the um, expectations for the audience have changed, are, are so different for different types of audiences. Uh, when you go to a, a a tennis match, people dress in tennis whites. I mean, can you imagine, other than Rocky Horror, can you imagine people feeling that they had to dress up in costumes of the show that they're going to see? Uh, if you go to a rock concert, you're required to like scream and yell and, uh, you know, hold up your, your lighter or now you hold up the, uh, the flashlight on your cell phone. Uh, <laughs> You would never do that at a theater, but theaters are a little bit more relaxed than like if you go to see an opera or you go to see a symphony where well, you are. Yeah, a lot you. of people wear tuxedos to go to those. And if you make the slightest sound at those things, people will beat you. <laughs> they, Robert, what happened? I mean, this thing that now I find that uh, there are certain people that after every song, this whoop where they scream. And mm -hmm. sometimes it is ear piercing. Yeah. Every single song that they feel that they need to, this loud screeching in the theater, um, rather than just applauding someone. And it's not th that they're yelling bravo or anything. It's a loud whoop and that it's blood curdling sometimes. But they're used to going to rock concerts. And that is, if you sat there silent at a rock concert, people would say, aren't you enjoying the concert? That's the, to, to like respond in a very loud way is to is a way of showing their appreciation. I mean, look at the fact that every show gets a standing ovation now. Um, uh, which well, I love what Sondheim said about that. Not that long ago. Tell what did Sondheim say? Well, Sondheim said that people spend so much money. Oh yes, right. Now, when going to the theater, that they want to feel that they've gotten their money's worth. Validate <laughs> experience. Yes, I do have. Yes. Other people other than Sondheim have said that as well. Um, it's validating the experience. Um, but audiences, you know, as I said, audiences, the, the can you imagine doing a wave at a show and if you like the show? But if you don't do a wave at a at a uh, uh, sporting event, they're thinking, oh, they, you're not supporting the team. Imagine if they, we had stadium horns at the theater and we would blow a stadium horn when we liked something. If you don't do that at a sports sporting event, you're telling them you're not enjoying it. You think they're doing a bad job. Uh, I have a there's a whole history to applauding. There's a whole history to booing, and I have them both in my audience book. Uh, what is required? Even audiences' response to a sense of humor. Richard, a hundred years ago, the dominant form of, of humor in this country was ethnic humor. Mm -hmm. people a lot a lot of performers they were like do you do blackface no why not that's what the audience wants they want blackface now if you do blackface your career is over or even if you did blackface 20 years ago your career is over which is i think is i i think that that blackface and appropriating things like that is horrible and i'm so glad we don't do stuff like that anymore well, you know, but a hundred years ago that was that was the type of humor they had uh, i mean look at chico marx 
he did an Italian accent. They used to do what was called Dutch accents, which was a, like a Jewish accent. Look at Gallagher and Sheen. They were two of the most popular performers. One of them did an Irish accent. One of them appeared as a drunken, quote unquote, drunken Irishman. And the other one did a Dutch accent, which was a uh, an exaggerated Yiddish accent. But if you did what they called blue humor in those days, you did a sexual joke, you did a suggestive joke, you'd be blackballed. You couldn't work at, at, at the theater anymore. You you were out on your... On well, your I was talking to Leroy Reams the other night, and he recently did a, a talk, and he showed a photograph of one of his first shows, and it was Finian's Rainbow. Right. And in Finian's Rainbow, there was a chorus of actors in blackface, Mm -hmm. And someone in the audience was got very upset about it. And uh, Leslie Elkins, who was in the audience, said, well, that was what that show was at that time. And that being in the blackface was very much a part of what that show was about. Right. And uh, that she did not find anything offensive about that at that you know, in the show and in the context of what that show was about. Well, the show, uh, Finian's Rainbow, is very anti, a very anti-racist show. Yes, of course. If you remember, Senator Rawkins, who is a horrendous racist, uh, uh, they use the uh, the uh, leprechaun's crock of gold. One of the three wishes they have is to turn him black so that he will see what it's like to be a black person in the America that he created, that in the society that he created and so yes rawkins appears as part in part of the second act in blackface because he has been turned into a black person just to show what that life is like but i don't know a whole line of of uh people in blackface uh, yeah it's a little tough but anyway i mean we are at the end of our show robert i i mean will you promise that you'll come back uh your book's coming out uh right this way is coming out in August. It's coming out in August. It is on pre-sale now on Amazon, Absolutely. And, and Noble, and things like that. So it can be ordered now. Uh, and uh, both the, the, the Good Morning Olive is is out now, and you can order it, and you'll get it in a day or two. And it's incredible. Uh, we have we we barely scratched the surface, but this book is so incredible. I couldn't put it down. Thank you. I'm glad to hear you say that. Okay. Uh, my my. By the way, I held up before a copy of. Um, uh, of uh, right this way, it's not out yet. My wife made this as a prop so that I could so that I could show the book. I don't want you to think that the book is out. This is my wife just made this for this show. So I uh, and uh, I want to thank your wife. Uh, I mean, mm -hmm. like I said uh, before we went live, uh, if she makes house calls, um, <laughs> I, uh, you know, if I could get a crock of gold, uh, a gold, my wish <laughs> is that I could clone her and send her out for you know all these shows to help because. You've got a golden rainbow there's, right there. There's only don't one. Go, don't God. go anywhere like for a moment, Robert. I'm going to give you the final word today. But before uh, we get there, I'm going to give my final comments. And then I'm going to turn it over to you. Uh, it could be about anything that we spoke about today that you want to build upon, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish that we had, or just any final message that you wish that we had spoken about. I want to thank everybody who tuned in today. Um, I please uh, go to Amazon right now and order Good Morning Olive. Uh, you will thank me. It is a very good read. Um, I want to uh, let you know about some of the exciting shows that are coming up this month. Um, in just a couple of days, uh, Charles Bush 
is coming on the show. He has a new book coming out uh, also in August. August is going to be a busy month. Uh, his memoir is coming out. He's oh. also got a new show that's going to be coming up uh, at 54 Below. And he's stopping by on Wednesday uh, to talk about that. Uh, and there are a few theaters that um, are just getting started with their seasons. And I have a few people coming on the show on Thursday uh, to talk about some new off-Broadway shows, uh, new seasons and everything. If you want to know about uh, everything that's coming up on my show, uh, please sign up for my newsletter. Uh, it's called The Skipper's Guide, and it comes out every Monday. And you can go to richardskipper.com and sign up for that. You will not be spammed. It comes out only on Mondays. Uh, so please sign up for that. Um, as I do with every show, I tell everyone to pick up the phone and call someone that you haven't spoken to in a while. Not an email message, not a text message, not a private inbox message, but a phone call. And let that person know how they've made a difference in your life. It's very important that we do so. I have a dear friend. He says, we're all in the same storm. And speaking of storms, oh my God, what's going on in the Midwest right now? My heart goes out to these families. Um, the other night, uh, I watched uh, these families and a lot of these families uh, were already living below the poverty line and to see that they've lost everything that they had. Um, if you're able to contribute in any way, uh, by all means, do so. Um, and... Uh, be thankful for what you have. Uh, we all complain a lot uh, when we have so much to be thankful for. Uh, so uh, reach out to those people you love. Uh, we're all in the same storm, as some people say. Uh, but uh, these people are really going through a really difficult time right now. Uh, Robert, thank you for giving a lot of uh, happiness uh, through Playbill.com. It's still with us and it's still going strong. Uh, 22 books and counting uh, my bookshelves. I've got to put more bookshelves in. Uh, so uh, give me something to work towards. Uh, but in any case, uh, and I do want to put it out there. Uh, I have a new show, An Evening with Richard Skipper, uh, celebrating 44 years in this incredible business. Uh, and I just got booked in Provincetown on August 5th which is the actual date of my arrival in New York. So if any of you are planning your vacations, uh, I'm sorry. Happy anniversary. Thank you. So if any of you are planning your vacations this summer, join me in Provincetown. Uh, I'm, it's going to be a fun show. I'm looking forward to it with Michael Mackesy at the piano. So I'm going to leave the screen right now. I'm going to turn it over to you, Robert. And it's all yours. And uh, thank you for being here today. Again, thanks to your wife. And make it a better tomorrow, everybody. Go to the theater. I'll see you later. Bye. He's right. And one of the things that we have to give thanks for is, is you, Richard, uh, your tireless support of theater. Um, one of the things that I did, one point that I wanted to make the, the central thesis of my audience book is this. You know, I've been, I have, if you look at my, I have hundreds and hundreds of theater books here, and they're all about composers and actors and directors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, the most important collaborator in the whole world of theater is the audience, the people sitting out there. And I have a theory and a theory that informed my whole career and my, especially my magazine. And that is that theater does not happen on the stage. I don't believe it does. What happens on the stage is designed to evoke theater. Theater is something that happens in the audience. It happens in the hearts and the minds of the 
people who are sitting there watching and are responding and are allowing theater to move them, make them laugh, make them sob, make them fill with wonder. And that is where theater happens. It happens in the audience. And there is very little that is written on what it's like to have the experience of being an audience. I've seen more than 2000 Broadway shows and many, many other shows and movies and everything else. And the audience experience is a real, a real sense of who we are as human beings. And I try to capture that in the book. And so I thank uh, Richard and I, I thank all of you for, for sitting and, and letting me talk about it because you know, the book is about, it was about you. It's about you and your experience. So thank you very much for coming today. And thank you, Richard. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.